Welcome to Behind the White Coat Podcast. I am your host, Eric Malara, a first-year medical student. In this podcast, we listen to the stories of the people in medicine. My guests will range anywhere from your first-year medical student to doctors and anything in between or beyond. Today's guest is Satonia Douglas, a first-year medical student at the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. She was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and is a first-generation American born to Nigerian and Jamaican immigrants. Satonia graduated from the university at Albany as a double major in human biology and art. She also received a master's of biomedical sciences at Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine. Along her journey to medical school, she's had many people advise her not to pursue medicine, including a pre-med advisor. She's had to overcome failing classes and getting rejected to medical school. It is my great privilege to be able to listen to and learn from Satonia's story today. So welcome and thanks for joining me today. Hi, no problem. So I, I want to start with your community. So can you tell me a little bit about like where you're from and what it was like growing up? Sure. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, specifically in the Flatlands area. Um, for people who are not super familiar with where that is, um, that's between like Canarsie and Flatbush and East Flatbush. So my neighborhood is considered lower ec- economic, um, lower socioeconomic status. Um, the makeup of my neighborhood is is unique in the fact that if you drive maybe five minutes in one direction, you'll get to a higher socioeconomic status neighborhood. Um, and if you drive five minutes in the other direction, um, it's a, it's the complete opposite. And growing up, I learned very quickly, um, that I lived in a lower socioeconomic status neighborhood because of some of the things that I was exposed to from early. So having classmates who lived in the housing developments and hearing some of their stories and some of their experiences and um, just, you know, being around the corner from the housing developments. So at a young age, you, you basically knew that you were exposed to a things maybe a young person shouldn't be exposed to in terms of like violence and poverty. Yes, absolutely. And initially I thought this was normal. I remember going to junior high school a little bit further from my elementary school. And for a very long time, I had a feeling of everybody is living like this. And I remember the day that I learned that that was not true um, because it was one of my first days in, in junior high school and our junior high school, again, this was in Sheepshead Bay. This is not, Sheepshead Bay is also not an area that's, um, um, considered higher economic status, but in Sheepshead Bay, we did have, uh, a little more of a diverse population within my, my element, my, sorry, my junior high school. And I believe, some of just hearing some of my classmates speak about the way they were growing up. I learned in junior high school that, wow, everyone didn't grow up the way that I did. Right. And yeah. So one of those, you know, moments that 
kind of hit me about your story too is some of the violence that you experienced. Um, can you tell me about that one experience you had when you were 12, I believe, mm-hmm. and you know, one of your classmates got, um, shot. So maybe talk about some of those experiences if, if you, sure. if you can. Sure. So, um, I was a senior in, it was my eighth grade year. So I was a senior in junior high school and, uh, we were so excited to go off to high school and literally it may have been like three days before the last day of school. I don't even remember how I found out, but, uh, cause back then social media wasn't really, um, we had MySpace, but social media wasn't the first, um, it wasn't the first stop for information. Uh, but I remember learning that one of my classmates, someone who I had been in class with since sixth grade until, you know, graduation, I remember hearing the story and it just, it floored me because here I am, I was, uh, 13 and I was just in absolute shock because my, you know, someone that I was in classes with in school with, they were just going about life as normal. I believe the story was, uh, he was in the park with a friend and two or three people may have approached him and he had a bike and maybe about eight dollars if i if i remember this correctly he had i know he had a bike eight dollars and there was one other thing about the story that i'll never forget he got sneakers i believe they were jordans for graduation like as a present like his parents gave him jordans because oh he's you know getting older he's going to high school and the reason why i remember the sneakers is he was the type of person he never he wasn't very materialistic there were i had classmates that you know they always had the newest latest most expensive clothing and stuff like that and he wasn't like that so these sneakers were really they're really special to him and I guess it was just that combination of the bike and the sneakers and it made him a target. Basically it made him a target and they approached him and they tried to take it. He was fighting them, I guess. And finally one of them just pulled out a gun and they shot him in the head. And it was literally the craziest thing I had ever heard at that point in my life. I had never experienced death, even though I lived in a a rough neighborhood, I didn't directly experience death. And in that moment, when I heard the story initially, I thought to myself, wow, you know, like how did he didn't survive this? Ultimately he did end up surviving. And as you can imagine, there were, um, it was a long road to recovery And, you know, he's, even though he has recovered, he's not the same person. And to think that that one moment completely changed his life, but it also changed a lot of our lives because we were young and this was our friend and this was someone we cared about. And this was my first real brush with violence. 
and I just didn't understand it. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I, I feel like maybe for about, I, I would say that it traumatized me for sure. And for a while, I just, I wasn't the same after that. Wow. And it shouldn't be normal for any eighth grader to go through this, but this is normal for you. Talk to me about what high school was like for you. So high school was a unique experience for me because the year that I started high school, there was a new initiative that was kind of being phased in where they were closing down some of the larger high schools because they were underperforming and just not just underperformance, but there was also a lot of violence. So the school that I ended up going to was a completely brand new school. Um, and it was put in the building of Samuel J. Tilden High School. So I went to the Kurt Hahn Expeditionary Learning School and I was a part of the first cohort of students. And so with this, now that you're in high school, what was in your community or with your friends, what was the attitude for or the aspiration for higher education if there was any? So most of my classmates and peers, there wasn't a lot of talk about a future and what they wanted to do in the future. Do you think that maybe comes from a lack of role models in terms of like people you can look up to who have succeeded? I do. I I, I truly do believe that because even in our small high school we didn't have a lot of educators that looked like us. Mm -hmm. We also, as I, you know, as I've shared with my story also, I seeing a black physician, that was a unicorn. Mm -hmm. Um, Seeing, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the children of today are kind of privileged in a way because social media and TV. And I feel like, there's more representation these days, but then we really didn't have social media was just getting popular. Instagram was not a thing yet. The constant images of positivity, they were not widely shown. So we didn't have role models that were plastered all over the place. It was, it was hard to find someone who was doing something that was truly unique or different or just rare and actually have them mentor you, that was a rare thing. And one of your first role models was the first African-American doctor you saw. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. Um, So I was about, I was 14 and um, I needed to see a doctor and I couldn't get in with my normal pediatrician. And I was, I was at a point where I, I did want to be a little more, and I guess this wasn't the norm, but I wanted to be a little more, uh, I guess, proactive about my health. So, um, I looked into different resources. I actually ended up asking my guidance counselor at the time if she knew any resources and, I just magically ended up in Dr. Cambridge's office. And that first experience, I think, I don't remember if I was shocked, 
when she came when she came into the room. I don't remember that exact first like thing that went into my head. Or I don't remember that exact moment that she walked into the room, but I do know that there was like a rush of emotions. That is something I definitely know because she, I just, I I wanted to make her my, like, I wanted that to be my doctor forever. (laughs) (laughs) That was that was the like experience. Like I was so, I was, I was happy. I was so shocked, but it really was a reminder. It was like, wow, like this is a black doctor. Mm -hmm. Like you've never, you've never seen one before. You've never had a black doctor before. This is a black doctor. They exist. And like, this is actually possible. So like I had, like I said, I had always, always said like, oh, you know, I want to be a doctor. And I told this to to many educators throughout the year, many teachers, principals, I I would say it. And, but I never knew what one looks like. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) I never, I never knew what one looked like. And to see one in person, it was a flooring experience. And to be honest, even if she wasn't as fantastic of a physician as she is, I would have still went back to her anyway, because I was so happy to have that experience where I could speak to a physician and they understood what I was saying. The fact that you can connect with her, I think is so powerful. Yeah, it was, I, it was amazing. I didn't have to, I, for example, I remember I have experiences of going to other, um, other doctors in the past that maybe weren't, you know, were African-American and I would say certain terms and they'd be like, Oh, what's that? What do you mean? And I'm like, and then I'm trying to explain it. And I'm, and at this point, this is when I was younger. So me trying to explain something that I think everyone knows because that's how we talk. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, Mm -hmm. you know, it was confusing. So to have that experience and to have her like really, really care about my health and say like, look, you really need to fix this, this and this. And it's so important. Changed my life, honestly. That is amazing. And so, you know, before you met her, you, you mentioned you did want to go into medicine. You said, I want to be, become a doctor. Like where and how does that passion for medicine even begin if there's really no role models in that field for you? So, and I can't really attest to this because I was so young, but apparently like from when I was really, really young, even when I went to the pediatrician, I would always ask like, what's going on with that patient or that patient? Like I would literally ask her like, (laughs) can I follow you? Can I go into the next room with you? Um, and my parents, you know, they, they joke about it because like I said, I was so young, I don't even really fully remember it, but they're just like, you know, like, this is something that you've always said. And I think when I got to junior high school, I, so when I got to junior high school, I, I had this opportunity to take, like, it was literally like a crash course in anatomy. And I'm calling it a crash course because I feel like we only had like two lessons of anatomy, but the anatomy really, anatomy in itself really drew me in. And between that and my love for science and like my love for like creativity and art, for whatever reason, it just felt, it felt right. It felt like it made sense. And 
from that anatomy class, I started like watching doctor shows. So I was one of the people that started off watching like Grey's Anatomy when it first, first, <laughs> first started. And I was probably too young to be watching Grey's Anatomy, but it was so intriguing to me. It just, it made it, it made me so happy. I would hear the medical terms and it just kind of made sense. And just constantly, I had this overwhelming feeling of like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. <laughs> I don't know. I can't, I can't really. So even again, before I was 14, before I met Dr. Cambridge, I was still saying like, I don't know when this is going to happen. I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm going to figure this out. Um, and when Google became popular, I would always Google, like, I would Google, like, how do you become a doctor? How do you, how do you, um, get into medical school. This is when I was like in high school or, you know, like, again, it wasn't the exact timing to say like, I should be researching these things, but I just had that interest. And I always knew that like something is pulling me in this direction. So that's, it was just an overwhelming feeling. And so how did your friends react to like you telling them like, I'm going to be a doctor? Wow. That's a good question. Um, so I feel like, so I was uh, a part of another New York City initiative called the Gifted Program. So basically it was a group. So they would basically separate students by um, like their grades and like their performance on like state exams. And I was in a class until high school, I would say, of students who are all high performing. So when I said stuff like that back then, it was accepted because many of them had similar passions. I don't think I ever had a classmate who said, you can't do that at that stage back then before prior to high school. When I got into high school, I remember, I, I do have this specific memory that just came to mind. I remember I was speaking to a student who was younger than me and we were, we were associates and she asked me, she said, why are you going to college? Why are you going straight to college? And I'm like, I want to be a doctor. I I know what I want to do. I, I, you know, at that point I was so sure. So uh, she's like, no, I, I wouldn't go straight to college. Like I, I want to work first. I want to make some money. Um, I don't want to go back to school. And I was so confused because I didn't understand. I was like, why are you not as passionate about like what comes after college as I am? So those experiences, they really, or just conversations. And I had many conversations like that. Many. I remember having a conversation with another student where it was as simple as graduating high school and I, and she said, how do you know you're going to graduate? And um, I was so confused because, again, I was the type of student that I was I was on top of it. I knew what I wanted. I was dedicated to what I wanted to do. So I was so confused. I was just like, what do you mean you don't know if you're going to graduate high school? And I think that's something that I definitely want to make sure that I'm, I'm emphasizing. A lot of people didn't know if they were going to get a high school diploma. So the idea of college was very, like, very um, abstract, very 
very wild, very, and if you went to college, if you went to the high school that I went to and you went to college, you did not go to high school, you did not go to college away. You didn't go to college out of state. You went to one of the local colleges. You went to one of the local community colleges. You stayed local. Even going away to college was a very unique, commendable thing. So, yes. (laughs) And so, like, how did you find the way of, like, having your friends in your community being like, oh, I need to go to high school first. And then them saying like, you're going to go to college. So like, how did you keep that passion just to be like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. So I believe that from young, I kind of figured out if you want to achieve something, maybe you don't tell everyone. And maybe you also just kind of surround yourself with other people who are interested in achieving that same thing. So a lot of my friends, they were people who also wanted to go to college. My closest friends, they also wanted to go to college. I did have one friend that I remember um, that was very close to me and she wanted to go to college so bad, but her financial situation and her family um, situation kind of limited that and it broke our friendship. Because when I started getting ready for college, she was in a position where she was trying to figure out where she was going to live after high school. So here we are. We're both like our grades were similar, but because of the family impact and not having the familial support and some of the adversities that she was facing that were absolutely insane, our lives went on two separate paths. And for me, I just, I literally just surrounded myself with people that I kind of, you know, I knew I could say, if I said something like, I'm going to do this special program because it's going to make me a better applicant for college, they would say, oh, I'm going to look into that too. And those are the people that I kept around me from young. And that's kind of how I kept going because whenever I made friends outside of that mindset, I would end up in trouble, literally. <laughs> so, so I just made sure that the people that, and it's, it's funny because I remember my high school principal, um, he's an amazing person. Um, Mr. Brown, he is one of the most amazing human beings ever. He had sat me down one day. This was when I was maybe in my sophomore year of high school. And he said to me, because he saw that like I was making friends outside of that you know, mindset. And he said to me, he was like, you could achieve like amazing, amazing things. And his advice was literally what I'm repeating now, like just to make sure that the people that were around me were also going down that path. I think it's very powerful what you just said of like surrounding yourself with like-minded people. And so you're in high school and to also mention that you're you're also working at the same time, right? Mm, yep. So you want to talk about working at, at McDonald's? Yes. So, whew, okay. And I'm sorry. Lately, when I when I speak about this, I get really emotional because um, I didn't realize again, just growing up, I didn't realize how unique this was, or how not normal it was, or how different it was. As soon as I was eligible to work. 
I looked into the process of getting working papers so that I could get some type of employment. The reason why I did that, at the time, finances were really tight at home and my parents were just under an immense amount of pressure and I was old enough and I was at an age that I knew what was going on and I knew that creating, or I felt it was creating more of a burden So I decided, let's, you know, let's look for a job. Let's see if we can balance a job in school. And I went to one of my friends and they said that they knew someone that worked at Burger King. So my first job was actually at Burger King. I left that job because they didn't have um, a shift that was accommodating with my high school schedule the following year when I had went Um, When I, before I started, um, I believe that was my junior year of high school. They didn't have a shift that was accommodating. So I left that job, started looking into other work. The first store that I saw that was hiring was 34th Street McDonald's. And for anyone that doesn't know, that's about an hour and 10 minutes from my house on the train. And this was, this was again, unique because I think what a lot of people don't realize is living in Brooklyn, um, you don't go into Manhattan a lot because Manhattan is, unless you're going to Times Square, Manhattan is more expensive and a lot of the resources that you need are in Brooklyn. So there are people who are maybe even in their mid-teens to late teens who have never been to Manhattan or who have never been to 42nd Street before, but have lived in New York City their whole life. So this was, again, unique. I would, so I would go to school. I was student body president. So after school, I would work on whatever I had to do. I was also a cheerleader. So if we had practice, I would go to practice and then After I would head to the bus, take the bus to the train and get into work about maybe five or so and then work until about 11, get off and get into bed, maybe around 12, get up the next day, do it all over again. So not only was this hard, but I I feel like from a, from, from even from high school, I didn't sleep a lot because even getting in at 11, 12 o'clock at night, it was hard. So, and most of the time I still had a homework assignment or I would do my homework on the train. So I still had stuff to like finish up. So even from high school, I just wasn't getting a lot of quality sleep. I would actually, and you know, like this is another, another issue that I faced. I would get to school late And that was also a problem. It was definitely, it was definitely a very trying experience. So you're working, you're going to school, you got a bunch of stuff going on basically in your life as a teenager. You you know, you're going to go to college, you decide I'm going to apply to college. And then you start maybe preparing for your personal statement. And the personal statement, you know, at least for me is like a time of introspection, a time of reflection. If you can even remember, what was like the one thing maybe you reflected on the most? This is this is actually a really good question. So 
Wow. Uh, sorry, more and more, more emotions. Um, so in elementary school, I had a educator. I believe this was my, this was my second grade teacher. Her name was Miss Fainsod. And initially in the beginning of the year, we didn't really, it was, it was weird. It took me a while to kind of warm up to her and it, it just seemed the same. So, but again, I was a kid, this was second grade, but somewhere I, I would say towards like October or like November. Or so um, we really started to bond. And the thing that was unique about Miss Fainsod is she always saw potential in her students that no one else seemed to see. And she would push us and it would make us better because she pushed us. And we were, we were the second to last class that she taught before she passed away from pancreatic cancer. Um, but the way how she believed in me, it was, I never had someone who was a complete stranger believe in me that way. She challenged us as second graders. We were reading on a fifth grade level. She would buy us books and um, she just really pushed you to your full potential. And again, I said that I had always said I wanted to be a doctor. So this was one of the things that she knew. And all I could remember um, growing up is like the fact that like, you know, anytime something was really hard for me, I would always remember like, you can do it. Look at what you did then, you know? And one of the things I would reflect on is reading these chapter books, right? In the second grade. And this was like, because of her. So in my personal statement, I spoke about her. I spoke about the fact that she, she pushed me and she saw my potential. I spoke about why, um, you know, and then I was able to tie in that drive that she kind of began like instilling in me into everything I was doing in high school. So I was able to tie in being student body president and being a cheerleader and being a part of all these different clubs and, you know, also still like getting good grades and working really hard. And I think that's what made, you know, my college personal statement so special and so like unique. Wow. Aren't educators so important in our society right now? They absolutely are. They, they really are. <laughs> and so, you know, you get accepted into college and now you're going to go to college. So what was that transition like for you moving away? You know, it's, it's tougher a lot of students, but was there maybe anything in particular that maybe like stood out for you um, in that transition? Okay. So, wow. Um, I want to say that feeling of living outside of Brooklyn is what hit me the most because all my life I lived in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, which we maybe traveled here or there, but not much. I maybe left 
um, we didn't travel to the extent that maybe we went to Connecticut or New Jersey one day, but we were always like, you know, we, we didn't go far. So um, to now be put in a situation where I'm living in a city that I have never lived in before. I'm living with other students. There are no, I remember, it's so funny. I remember this one specific situation. There was like a get together in someone's dorm and this was my freshman year. And I kept, I had like this overwhelming feeling of like, oh my gosh, we, you know, it's getting late. People should start leaving. Um, Parents are going to start coming home soon. Like (laughs) it was so strange, but I was so in the mindset of like, I really thought that everyone grew up the way I did. So now living in this city that was so different, I mean, it wasn't completely different, but it was, it wasn't Brooklyn. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a transition. Um, I remember trying to find uh, those staples in the community. So like, uh, you know, like, so again, being Jamaican and Nigerian, I, I remember looking for a place that had like good African food or looking for a place that had Jamaican food and, you know, not being able to find the good one um, or learning how to do laundry or just little things like that, that, you know, you kind of just, as you start to get older, you kind of get into like, okay, I have to find these things for myself. I have to figure these things out for myself. Um, but I, I definitely think that I also felt homesick very quickly because of this. And I want to say that it definitely attributed to, um, my grades, my freshman year, because it was definitely a weird adjustment and it took me a little bit to adjust and when I was younger, I was, I, I can admit that I was scared of change. Uh, like even, I remember graduating from high school feeling like I'm so happy that I'm going off to college, but I was also so afraid of change. And obviously I've, I've grown out of that. And through college, I want to say that I, I definitely grew out of that, but initially it was very hard. And can you maybe talk a little bit more about, you mentioned your grades, um, and maybe how you struggled with that. Sure. So my first semester, um, I'm taking classes that, you know, this is college. This is no longer high school. In high school, I was, you know, I was able to kind of just do enough. Um, I didn't have to study really hard. I did enough and I got good grades college, I'm in a position where I have to study. I have to practice really hard. I have to work really hard. And I've always struggled with math. So when I took calculus, I knew that it was going to be uh, a challenge. And despite that, anyway, I said, okay, I have to take this class because it's a prerequisite for medical school. And that was my first C in college, just straight off the bat. And I maybe cried for like two days <laughs> um, because I just, I had this overwhelming feeling of like, I failed. Like I, I had one, I had one focus, one kind of mindset. All I had to do was go in and do what I've always done. And I should have been getting the grades that were, you know, representative of, of who I was as a person. And I failed. 
I felt like I failed, even though a C is not technically failing. Um, but I remember this feeling of like, I failed and I feel like it carried over into the next semester. So I had this feeling of like, I'm not doing my best on top of this feeling of being homesick. Um, I was still trying to like get used to everything and make friends and a bunch of emotions. So that second semester was really hard, but ultimately I think what I realized pretty quickly is that I needed some type of guidance and the guidance is what led me to the pre-medical advisor, the beginning of my sophomore year. So can you maybe talk about that experience with the advisor? Absolutely. So uh, let me uh, clarify, I guess, the classes a little bit more. So, and then it will make a little bit more sense on why I went to her office. So when I first came in, I went with the regular coming in saying that when you when you go into uh, university at Albany and you say that you're pre-med, there's a specific track that they will give you. And it's the same classes, essentially, until you decide to make changes to them. I didn't know about I didn't know anything about creating a college schedule. So I literally just went with whatever was handed to me and when I struggled and I got that C, I went back to that. This was just a general advisor that I went to. And he said, okay, well, if, you know, if, the, if these classes were um, combined in a way that um, it was too hard or it was too much, maybe you should not take general chemistry two until another semester, like put off general chemistry two. And I said, okay, so I just took Gen Bio 2 and I I think I took, I, I can't remember everything specifically, but essentially I put off general chemistry too. So then the idea was presented to me by that same advisor that, oh, maybe you could take it during the summer because if I took it during the summer, then that way I would still technically be on track to take all of my prereqs before taking the AMCAT and et cetera, junior year. So I said, okay, I'll take it during the summer. So I enrolled at a uh, at Brooklyn College, which is again back home. I took that class, but because it was summertime, I also needed to work. So I went back to Burger King. I was working forty hours a week at this point, but I was also going to school. And general chemistry two was compacted in a way that it was all of the material in four weeks. I completely failed. This was a complete fail. Like this was my first F (laughs) and my last F because it hurt that much. (laughs) Um, But I completely failed the class. It went horrible. And at that point, that's when I felt stuck. And I said, okay, I need to see my pre-medical advisor beginning of sophomore year before I enroll for any classes, before I do anything, I need to speak with her because I need to know what I'm supposed to do next. And the combination of the C that was already on my transcript for University at Albany with the F from Brooklyn College, I believe that that really did play a role in the advice that she essentially gave me. And she basically, like, she looked at my grades. It was maybe, we weren't in there for very, it was a less than five minute conversation. And she was just like, yeah, no, I don't think this is right for you. I had never had an advisor, a guidance counselor, anyone 
tell me I couldn't do this, right? I had people who, okay, friends or people who were outside of the mentoring role tell me, yeah, okay, I don't know why you're doing this. But for someone who I specifically thought that like, I can trust you, you're going to give me the proper advice. This is what I really want to do. I never expected her to say, you should look into another career path. This is not right for you. Especially after only knowing me for five minutes. And so you've mentioned, you know, you took the the MCAT. And for those of you who don't know, it's the medical college admissions test. It's basically like the SAT to go to medical school. And so on your first one, you got a 19th percentile, right? And then you improved to the 73rd percentile. What was your mindset from that first MCAT to the second time? You know, it's funny because the first time I took the MCAT, I was in, I was a senior in college and I knew I wasn't ready, but I had already enrolled and I was hoping that I could take um, the MCAT before it, it changed because it was the it was the last test that was offered before it changed to the current version. Um, and I was hoping I could take it and I could do really well and then I'd put it behind me and that would be it. Obviously, things did not go that way. And I even like ran out of time. If I remember correctly, I don't remember what section it was, but I ran out of time on that first try and I left feeling like, wow, that did not go well. Like I knew, I knew it didn't go well. So when I got my score, I didn't know it was going to be as low as it was, but, um, I kind of just took it and I said, okay, that was not your best, but you can do better. So I, I, and this didn't come up, but I did take it a second time. The new one, I took the, the 2015, the one that came out in 2015, I took that one. Um, and it was basically a repeat of me not being completely ready. And I kind of knew I wasn't completely ready, but because of timing, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this anyway. And the difference with the final time is I not only had all of the knowledge from my master's program, but I also had this new, um, my study skills had improved so much. My study habits had improved so much. I knew the test better than any other time I had ever taken it. I really like studied how I was supposed to be an efficient test taker also. And I think that made the biggest difference. Can you maybe talk to me about the your first cycle of actually applying to medical school? Sure. So my first cycle, I applied to about 15 schools and I just kind of I, I just kind of picked schools just randomly. I, I was like, oh, this, you know, I've heard of this school before. I've heard of that school before. I kind of went with, let's just do, you know, whatever I kind of have a knowledge of. And I was applying to schools that I wouldn't have been a fit at the school. But just because I heard about the school, I was like, oh, okay, fine. Um, and I think that was really it was, it wasn't, I didn't plan. I just did it because I said, I'm running out of time. I have to do this. Let me do it. And 
it wasn't my best um, representation of myself and I didn't. And I remember when the rejection letters started coming in because I, I don't, for the people who don't know this, you, you get your letters um, via email first and then you get, maybe you get a hard copy. But I remember when those emails started coming in and I was like, okay, so I would just tick one off. Okay. Down to 13, down to 10, down to five. And, um, when I got that last rejection letter, I knew I was like, okay, you need to find plan B today. It doesn't matter what else is going on today. You have to take some time and figure out how you're going to get into medical school because this is, this is not the end. You didn't put your best foot forward. What are you going to do now? And what was that plan B? The plan B was going on Google and Googling medical school master's program. (laughs) (laughs) That's literally what I typed into the search box. And luckily enough, I I found Geisinger. And um, I I say this, um, Geisinger gave me a chance when no other school did. And I feel like I am forever indebted to them for that because no other school said yes to me that year except for them. So they must have had a, obviously had a huge impact on you. Your time at Geisinger, like what was probably the most impactful experience you had uh, with them? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so when I got to Geisinger, I realized that it's so first off for people who don't know, it's in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And the idea of diversity in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And this is from one of the residents that said it, one of the people that live there, like one of the local people that live there, their idea of diversity is not, um, oh, we have people of color, we have people of different backgrounds. And no, their idea of diversity is we have people that are from different countries, but they're still the majority So they don't have many minorities in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So when I got there, this hit me very hard because again, being from Brooklyn, New York, even though I had lived in a few other places at that time, it was still a shock to my system. So I wanted to kind of create that environment that we didn't have like outside of the institution because the, the nice thing about the year that I started, this was the first year that they had accepted so many minorities into the program. So they accepted the most underrepresented minority students that they ever had that year. And when I was around my classmates, it felt like home. Right. So I wanted to create something that, basically fostered that like experience inside of the institution that even though we're not home, we still have a, like, we still have a bond. We still have people who are going through the same things. So I started speaking to some of my classmates and I said, do you know what the student national medical association is? They didn't know what it was. Um, And for the listeners that don't know, the student national medical association is a association of medical students that basically lives to increase the amount of diverse, socially conscious physicians in the physician workforce. And 
They also have a minority association pre-medical students under them because they know the importance of reaching back and helping other people also become medical students and become doctors. So I wanted to create that at Geisinger because I felt like it was so important for us to have those resources and that family. So I spoke to people, I started gathering people up. Um, you know, I asked like, is this something you'd be interested in? And I maybe got like 20 people to sign up and I was so happy. And then I started looking into, okay, so who's the regional director in this region started seeking out resources and we were able to reinstate um, the MAPS chapter at Geisinger. And we were also able to create um, a local, like a local school-wide diversity club also, so that either way, there would always be a diversity group, a, a resource, that home feeling for students who were URM. And this was, it was so important because um, the year that we started, there was one African-American student in the first year class and there was one African-American student in the second year class. And they immediately gravitated towards this and we were able to provide, again, that sense of like community and home for those students as well. After your first cycle, you know, you got rejection after rejection after rejection. You go to Geisinger and you have a great experience there and then you apply your second time. What was going through your mind getting that uh, first interview invitation? So my score cleared and my applications were finalized. And literally the day that my score cleared, I got the remaining um, secondary applications and I completed them, turned them back in and maybe about a week. That was like my rule. Like I, I wanted to get my secondaries in within a week of getting them. And the day that I turned in my secondary, I must have turned in my secondary and I took a nap and I woke up and I had an email and the email said um, something. I don't remember what it's, I'm sure I, I still have it, but it said something along the lines of, we'd like to invite you for an interview. Please use the link below to schedule. And <laughs> that moment, Jesus, I, I just completely floored me because all I wanted the first time I applied was an interview. I said, God, if I could just get one interview, I could speak to them and I could explain things and I could, you know, like really just show that like I'm capable of doing this. And I never got that interview the first time, but this second time, the day that I got that interview, I must've called like every single family member I had <laughs> because I was so happy and they were so happy and they knew how hard I worked. So they were just like, and it's so funny because I was doing all these things and then I didn't even like finish reading the email. <laughs> so, so I was so excited that like, I was like, wait, I have to like buy a plane ticket and I have to figure out like a hotel. <laughs> like I was just so caught up in the feelings of everything that I, I didn't even remember that I actually had to like attend the interview. <laughs> 
but that moment i i know it's one like i'll never forget like it completely like completely just made it at that point i knew that like i was going to get into medical school and so how does that compare to when you get your first acceptance into medical school <laughs> Oh boy, that was also amazing. <laughs> um, but I think again, and I, I do speak about this a little bit and the fact that like, I wasn't in my head, I thought I, I would get my first acceptance and I would be at home. I thought I would be like somewhere, you know, in Brooklyn. And I had always said like, okay, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to find my parents or, you know, but it just turned out that I was at an airport in another country surrounded by strangers and they were probably looking at me like, why is this girl crying? (laughs) 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 Um, But, but it's just, it's, it's crazy because I, you know, like when I really reflect on it, I think it's amazing because I was in Africa and not only was I in Africa, but I was in Nigeria and, um, if you, if people understood the way how my father grew up and just some of the the adversities that he faced, right? Making it out of Nigeria and making it to the U.S. and just immigrating from Nigeria in itself is a very hard process. Um, so I think that just added to the moment, even though, again, I was surrounded by strangers and I really, I really couldn't express myself the way I wanted to. When I really, really reflect on it, I think the power in that moment and where I was, you can't make that up. (laughs) Like you can't write a better story, honestly. And I I think it was really meant to be like, how perfect was that, that you got, your acceptance into medical school in Nigeria. So you get accepted into medical school. And, you know, I think most medical students, before they start, we have like this fear, right? Or any change, like you said, and change in general, people are scared of change. But like, what fears did you have going into medical school? And then, you know, maybe what challenges did you not expect to have or maybe took you by surprise? Wow. That's also a very good question. Um, so fears that I had, it's funny because you would think that I would have a fear of failure, but to be honest, I was more so, I was more so afraid of the things that were outside of my control. And basically I was afraid of the things, for example, like with the current outbreak, (laughs) I was afraid of things like that happening and basically being a distraction. So I was more, I was more concerned about the distractions being so strong that they led me to failure. It was never a a fear of, Oh, I can't do this. I feel like everything that has happened to me so far has been reinforcement of you can do this but the things outside of my control, that is literally where all of my concern was. Um, just, and, and it's funny because everything that I was afraid of has happened, <laughs> but I, I've, I've managed to, to overcome them. So um, just, you know, wh- whatever, whatever the worry was, whatever the distraction was, I have managed to work through them. So I do think that, 
even though it, it was overwhelmingly like on my mind, I did manage to kind of work through that. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for your time. And then do you have any final thoughts? Final thoughts would be for anyone who I don't, and I don't know what the struggle or the adversity may be, but for anyone who believes without a doubt that something is right for them and it's something that it's not going to hurt or impact anyone else in a negative way, I believe that you should absolutely keep going. Like, don't give up on, on trying to attain that thing. If it's a career path, if it's, even if it's, you know, like it's a physical goal or whatever you envision, if you can create a plan to reach it, it's possible. Thank you for listening to this episode on Behind the White Coat. I want to thank Satonier for sharing her story with us. And please stay tuned for next week's episode as we listen to Dr. Minerva Arena's story, who is a general surgeon and co-founder of the Latino Surgical Society. Thank you for listening and take care.